yeah, I, th- I think it's it's changed the game. The the modern smartphone has capabilities to take photos, record audio, to access spreadsheets. I mean, there's so many different things you can do with phones these days. And I think it's a massively powerful tool that is underutilized. And so I hope that upcoming and future citizen science projects will do more to implore and and employ the smartphone, right? Like that, why not? Like technology is getting better every single day and it's giving more people access to information. So I say, use it. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Today on Animalia, we are talking citizen science. If you're not familiar with that term, citizen science is the practice of public participation and collaboration in scientific research. It can come in many forms, from joining a scientific expedition as a method of, let's say, volunteer tourism, to snapping nature photos on the popular app iNaturalist. Science is only as good as the research and data it can collect, and anyone can contribute to that collection in valuable ways. And as we'll learn in our discussion, it is important that there is a clear line of demarcation between how citizens and scientists are working together, what data is needed and why, and guardrails on that data collection. The good news, anybody can be a citizen scientist. Moreover, everyone probably should. Joining us for this discussion is Danny Washington. Danny is a TV host and science communicator. She's the first ever African-American woman to host her own science television series, She also hosts a new podcast, The Genius Generation, which we'll link to in our show notes. Danny is a major ocean advocate and co-founder of Big Blue and You, a nonprofit dedicated to inspiring and educating youth about marine conservation through arts and media. Science accessibility is a major pillar of Danny's platform. And as we'll learn in this discussion, citizen science fits neatly in between science communication and science accessibility. Oh, and Danny will also be joining us for our upcoming Animalia Costa Rica Sea Turtle Adventure. So don't forget to grab your ticket if you're interested, as there are only 20 slots left. Okay, let's get into the discussion. All right, well, I wanted to start by talking citizen science and what it means to you, Danny, and why you think it's so important. So how, how would you define citizen science for someone that hasn't heard that terminology before? Well, there are a lot of different definitions out in the world of exactly what citizen science means. But to me personally, it's simply the involvement of the public who don't necessarily have a a strong or extensive background in science, but are willing and able to contribute to the collection of data and bringing together research studies that allow for quicker, more efficient collections of information that we need to know and that are applicable to research projects being conducted by scientists, professional scientists. And as a a student, when I was at the University of Miami studying marine biology, I was constantly interning and volunteering with different scientists so that I could do exactly that, contribute to their research in a positive way, learn their techniques and learn the the standards in which they were working and be able to, to support this very important work that's happening uh, in the world. So that's how I would define citizen science. Yeah, it's a great definition. I, I think of it also, when I think of what I've learned about you and, and your brand, it, science communication and science accessibility are, are two pillars that stand out to me. And citizen science seems to fit neatly in between those two things in a way. Yeah, definitely. They absolutely do. And science communication is 
extremely important because we know that this gap of communication between the, the public and the science community has been there for way too long. I think that people want to feel welcomed and invited and that the information being gathered by these brilliant scientists is accessible for everyone. And so that's where science communicators come in. And so as a science communicator, someone who is super passionate about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and, and constantly wanting to learn, I truly enjoy what I do because I get to meet the experts, talk to them, learn from them, and then disseminate that same information in my own style that's relatable to different audiences and using different platforms and tools like social media and video and television programming. All of these places are opportunities and windows for us to have a deeper look into what scientific research is is literally what it's doing to change our world right now. Because STEM is the future. STEM is now. We need more people to lead in these spaces so that we can come to the solutions to some of our biggest obstacles quicker and more efficiently. I'm curious how you think we can draw a line on what is citizen science versus maybe not citizen science, but still environmentally friendly activity. So I think of something like a beach cleanup. We obviously know beach cleanups are great. You and I have probably done many of them. We encourage people to do them all the time, but there's not necessarily a research input aspect to it. Does For something to kind of qualify as citizen science in your mind, does it have to have a research component that is plugged into something that gets to the scientific community um, at large and is used or is the, am I am I correct in drawing that kind of line? Like where where do we draw the line on what would qualify as citizen science? Sure. Well, I think the bottom line is that we want everyone to have a certain level of scientific literacy, and again, make it accessible for people who may not have a science degree or formal education in science. But it's very important, I think, specifically to science, citizen science, is that we're learning and creating knowledge and and information at the same time. So I think it is important for citizen scientists to be able to contribute to a larger project or a larger research initiative so that they feel involved and that there will be tangible results that they can look at and 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 reflect on and know that they've contributed in a significant way. So that's where I would draw the line with citizen science. I think anyone can in, be involved in let's say like the example you gave of beach cleanup and help collect trash, but like, are we collecting and counting and quantifying what's being collected and then adding to the larger story? I think that's what really the the secret sauce to citizen science is that we're going to see the ripple effect and that, that data, that information that you've contributed is really important. And I think that the more that scientists engage and utilize citizen science, the better their research will be. For you personally, Danny, at what point, I mean, you've been in the science field since a young kid. Like you, you've had the benefit, I always say, of like, I'm always jealous of people who know from childhood what they're going to be. And kudos to you for delivering on that and having that clarity <laughs> and, and just going down that path. Where, at what point did you become aware of this concept of citizen science, if you can remember when that was? 
That's a great question. So I distinctly remember in high school, that's when I first became acutely aware of citizen science. I went to a high school in Hollywood, Florida called South Broward High, and they had a magnet program and still do to this day, a specialized program for high school students interested in marine science and other marine related careers. And I had the best time at that school because the coordinator of the magnet program became one of my very first mentors. Shout out to Mr. Davis, as well as the co-coordinators, Miss Deborah Hickson, Sharon Thomas. These were all uh, people who showed me opportunities to to get involved in science research, no matter what how old I was. I was 14 years old when we started going on field trips and helping with other projects. I remember the first project we did was called the Watershed Program, where we followed the Florida watershed from Lake Lake Okeechobee in central Florida, all the way down to Florida Bay near the Keys, where we see this very distinct flow of of fresh water that makes Florida extremely unique. And we did a series of camping trips. And on every trip, we were helping to collect information about the ecosystems, but also we were giving public facing presentations to people who were at the campsites. And it was my first taste of like, how do I take in and absorb everything that I've just learned and then regurgitate it for an audience that hasn't been involved in that in that field. So it was a really great learning experience. And then by the time I was 17 and I graduated from high school, that summer after graduating, the same program, the Marine Science Program at South Broward High selected eight students from our program to go to South Africa and to contribute to an actual master's degree research project with a man named Neil Hammerschlag, who is now Dr. Neil Hammerschlag at UM. And he was conducting his master's research on the predation patterns of great white sharks. And so the eight students that went from my school, we raised the money um, for all of us to go. We spent 15 days in South Africa going out on the water in False Bay every single morning before dawn to observe these predation activity, the predation activity of the Great Whites hunting Cape fur seals. It was it was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. And that truly set off the the spark for me. Uh, I knew that I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to contribute to science. And I also wanted to communicate and share these stories from the field. And all of those things put together is is really what I do today. I get to meet with scientists of all different disciplines, learn from them, and then share that experience with my audience. And I absolutely love what I do. For so long, science has been inaccessible in a way. It's reserved for PhDs and PhD programs are hard to access for a lot of people especially across race, socioeconomic lines, things, things of the, this nature. But it seems to be like the accessibility issue of science has also in a way worked against citizen science work because people have this notion that science is hard and you have to be, you have to go through years of training to be able to contribute to it. And this seems like completely false. And citizen science kind of is, is one tool against that. But why, why, do, you, why do you think making science more accessible is is so so important and then along those lines how do we make it accessible but but define it in a way that that accessibility isn't abused and and what i mean by that is in a in a world where we have a lot of misinformation now as well it's a double edged sword right of accessibility with a lot of misinformation and how do we how do you think about balancing that Well, I think in terms of checks and balances, that's an extremely important conversation. 
we know that our scientific experts, the people who are doing the hard, laborious work of research and publishing, that requires a lot of years of training. And that's why PhDs and postdocs are um, critical when you want to become super specialized in what you do and the scientific research that you're participating in. But at the same time, I think that people who have had negative experiences in the past, whether it be a high school biology teacher or a camp counselor where they went and they had a, a bad experience related to science, so many people carry those experiences with them throughout their lives and they and they have this sense of exclusion. They don't think that the, that science is for them. But science is such an important channel of knowledge. It is how we understand the way the world works, every system and and how they interact. And so we need more people to feel as though they can they can access it. I think that a lot of people tend to have some negative early experiences with science in grade school, whether it was a high school biology teacher or for me, it was like my physics professor in college, one of the worst learning experiences I've ever had in my life. So negative to the point where I like cringe when I think about it. But for many people, those experiences are what are at the forefront of their minds whenever they hear or relate to anything close to science and scientific research. And I think that we have to combat those experiences with more positive experiences, more hands-on experiences. And that's where citizen science comes in because you can participate basically at any age, as long as what the methodology is and you're connected to some bigger form of of research where there's a scientist, a trained professional scientist who who is managing and organizing this, this research, we can maintain this level of of authenticity, as well as making sure that it's following the scientific method. And it's a partnership. It's really about scientists who have worked hard to get their degrees and have dedicated years of their lives to to make this career happen, but also knowing that they can get to their answers and their solutions and their analyses a lot quicker if they had more sweat equity and they had more people supporting their work and also helping get the word out about their work so it's not trapped in the ivory tower and not left for just academics to access. We need more people involved so that they can feel an attachment to what these scientists are studying and how they can stay involved and know that it has some kind of connection to their community, to their to their families, to everything around them, to the entire world. This is our a great place to start building connections between people. And I firmly believe that those who adhere to the scientific method, this basic concept of collecting information, asking questions, analyzing the data, and then coming up with a conclusion that you can debate or talk about with your peers. To me, that that simple form process is something that can be applied to every aspect of our lives and all of our decision-making on a day-to-day basis, because that prevents us from making completely emotional decisions on things that matter most and that are going to impact future generations. And so I always try to fight for that idea that we can, that the Anyone can think like a scientist, and and that's the starting point to any type of citizen science project. Yeah, it's a great point to mention that in a way, we all do use the scientific method. We just don't realize it. Exactly. Uh, in terms of forming hypotheses, testing hypotheses, collecting data, drawing conclusions. I mean, I use it when I'm getting creative in the kitchen, right? And I'm trying to invent a dish or innovate something and as an experiment. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I use it, and I think people use it when they're optimizing a dating profile, 
right? You're, you're forming a hypothesis. What is going to be, what is going to attract the type of person I'm looking for? I'm going to test it. I'm going to put it on this profile and I'm going to draw conclusions. I'm either finding that person or I'm not. So we use it throughout our life and in different ways. We just don't call it the scientific method, but it is in, ingrained in us. And that is why it's so important to continue to teach science to kids, especially, but reinforce it throughout our lives because it is the right proper way to learn and to, and to optimize things we want to, op- things we want to optimize for. We don't just do it haphazardly. So it's a great point to, to make. I, I want to come back to something you just said around this seeing citizen science as a partnership between trained scientists and citizens. And I think that's a really important thing to emphasize here, that that partnership has to be there. Both ends have to be connected in a way, because without any citizen, anybody involving the science, are, the scientists are limited by the data they can only gather and the communication they can put out there. They're limited in that way. And without being connected to, to trained scientists, citizens may not be collecting the data that is most useful or with the right methodology. They might not know the hypothesis that is being tested because that forming that hypothesis and understanding how to analyze the data, that is where the science understanding and learning and training comes in. So what are some examples you've seen out there of that partnership really working well, be it in... A small program or a large program, what are just some examples that jump out to you of where you've seen that partnership between the trained scientific community and citizen scientists working together? One of my favorites would be iNaturalist, utilizing an app to empower citizen scientists to collect data for is so much fun. So much fun to use that app. Another great example would be like the International Coastal Cleanup that happens every September where people are going out and cleaning their waterways and collecting information about the trash that they're picking up. And that is, that's global information that is highly valuable. So the easier and the simpler we can make citizen science, the better. And I think it's all about taking it into bite-sized pieces. So how can we break up the research in a way that's that's fun, that's engaging, and that's doable so that people don't become overwhelmed? And so I love those two specific examples because I think they do the, just that and they're utilizing modern tools to, to get people involved. Some of the critics of citizen science will... The, the main argument I see put forward is the aspect of the work that has to be done to clean and make the data useful. And what, for those who don't understand what we mean by that, we say cleaning data. It just simply means data can come in all different formats and shapes and sizes, and it needs to be sort of synthesized in order to be useful back to, to for analysis. What, how, I mean, there, there seems to be some validity there, right, that there is work that has to be done in making use of that data. What would you say to those kind of pundits and critics of citizen science that say, well, there can be end up being more work on the science scientists and the scientist community in order to, to clean and synthesize and make that data useful. What, it, what would your response be to, to that? My response would be that it's up to the scientists before they begin a citizen science project to make sure that, the data that they're requesting these citizen science scientists to collect, again, is in bite-sized pieces, that it's not overwhelming, that it's not overly complicated. And, and that work 
prior to launching the experiment or launching launching the research, I think really will save so much time on the back end and 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 and, and also save frustration too on the parts of those who are participating in the citizen science so they're not confused. That takes a little bit more time and it's all about distilling information to its simplest form so that people can can take it in. And and that's to me on on the part of the scientists before they begin an endeavor like that. But I've definitely heard of those examples of where after after the fact, it's just way too much to handle, too much to clean up. And I totally get it because there are standards and protocols that scientists must follow when collecting data. I mean, that is a part of the scientific process. But how can you make it and, and bring it to its simplest form? That That to me is up to the scientists to decide. If you're intrigued by the notion of citizen science and wondering how you might get involved, we have just the ticket. From May 25th to June 1st, Danny and I will be hosting 20 people for a week on a remote Costa Rican jungle coast to work hands-on with leatherback sea turtles with our partners, the Latin America Sea Turtle Conservation. This is your chance for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. We have only 20 slots available, so make sure to get yours. Just go to our website, www.iloveanimalia.com slash Costa Rica. That's www.iloveanimalia.com slash Costa Rica. www.iloveanimalia slash Costa Rica. Hurry up though, slots won't last long. How, how would you say the cell phone has changed or impacted citizen science? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's changed the game. The, the modern smartphone has capabilities to take photos, record audio, to access spreadsheets. I mean, there's so many different things you can do with phones these days. And I think it's a massively powerful tool that is underutilized. And so I hope that upcoming and future citizen science projects will do more to implore and, in, in, and employ the smartphone. Right? Like that, why not? Like technology is getting better every single day and it's giving more people access to information. So I say use it. If we can go a little Black Mirror esque for just a second, <laughs> there's like, let's say an extreme theory would, would say, hey, we should all open up all of our data. I mean, we're all living sources of data, biological data in a way, our health data, our living data, and we should not be sort of critical of privacy because the more data we put into the system that can be used, like we all could be citizen science just by living in a way with the data we're giving off on ourselves. Of course, then the privacy argument to that is like, wait a second, there's so many ways to abuse that data and exploit people if if all their data is made made useful. Where, you know, do you see a world one day where the the this there will be a role as a citizen science of just being alive and making your data available. Does that get us in too much risk and black mirror type of, of, of situations? Um, I'm just curious on what your thoughts are on that, that notion. That's an interesting thought. I, I think that of course there has to be a code of ethics with any type of research that, that comes along as far as making data available regarding our like, daily lives and our daily health information and all of that, I think the best route is to make sure that every single person still has the autonomy to make that decision for themselves. That's really, I think, the fine line <laughs> where we don't cross into this this area that is unclear and foggy. Just 
make sure and maintain autonomy so that people feel as though they're not being exploited um, and that they're opting in. That to me is basically the standard that we should we should utilize. I think it's going to change because we're automatically and unconsciously giving our information away in a lot of, in a lot of ways using our technology these days. So yeah, it's it's a really fine line. I don't know the answer to that actually. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because like everyone who's wearing an Apple Watch now is opting in, mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people realize it, to sharing their health data exactly. um, with Apple. And that can be used to help them. That also can be used to mm-hmm. sell them things, things they don't necessarily need. And and that data, obviously, if in the wrong hands, can can be used for even more nefarious purposes. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. I, my philosophy, because I working in tech, we talk about data privacy a lot, is I think there's four principles. One is being transparent about what data you're collecting. Two is being transparent about how you're using it. Three is giving control to the person to basically delete it from your records and have the autonomy you're talking about. And then the four is making it secure, right? Uh, controlling who has access to it. And not selling For it. For me, if all four of those pillars are met, What's up? And I said not selling that information. Oh, he said and selling. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was in for me the second pillar of how you're how you're using it and being transparent about that. But I think if all four of those pillars are hit, I'm fine with people having access to my data. And it is interesting to think about our our own health data as a form of citizen science down the line, based on the environments we live in, geographies we live in, that can actually tell us a lot about what's what's going on. But yeah, sorry, it took us down a, a little bit of a, a black mirror path there for a second. <laughs> what about in terms of motivations for citizen science work? How much of it do you think is more altruistic versus more social? And we know social motivations are more powerful to creating action typically. I, I'm sure you and I both wish that more people were purely motivated by altruism. It's just not the way the world works. We have, I think if, if we depend on altruism to do everything, it's not going to work. But social motivation, and I, I struggle with this because we're increasingly moving into a world where external validation is being put on people as like necessary to feel good about yourself. And that brings a lot of psychological and mental health challenges versus having an internal validation. And social media is kind of a big sort of vehicle of that. At the other hand, social media is a great way to communicate science and share and make it more accessible. So how do we wrestle with like, do we want people kind of motivated to, to contribute to citizen science for social currency? And are we willing to, in order to, if that gets more people involved in citizen science work, is it worth the trade-off that they might then start to have negative psychological effects of like not feeling like they're doing enough or other people are doing more citizen science work than them, or it becomes a popularity or attention contest that we know is a, is a trap for people. How do you, how do you wrestle with, with that notion? Well, I think that if we're ever, if we're dealing with human beings, those, all of those things are going to come up no matter what. But the way that I kind of look at social media and like creating clout online is to make my content personally, an invitation. It's an invitation to, to invite just, it's an invitation for people to want to be involved and not necessarily just to flaunt the, the fact that I'm participating in some type of citizen science project. It's like, Hey, 
check this out. Here's how you can get involved. And it's, it's all about semantics and like how you present it. And everyone's style is so different. So there's no true silver bullet that could hit, hit those points in the way that certain people will think is right. Everyone has a different style. So I don't know. I I think that's kind of like a, a very broad question because when it comes to creating content, things are just different for each person and everyone has their own unique audience. So different things work for different people. So yeah, <laughs> feels a little bit existential. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean to post too many existential <laughs> questions to you, but I, I just think it's, it's worth debating and discussing because these are the, these are the things I think about a lot. Right. And recognizing that I, I wish we were in a world where everyone is acting out of the interest of the larger community and the planet. But People are acting out of self-interest and, and, and for right or rightful reasons sometimes, like people also need to survive. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line to figure out where, where to draw. And I, I could, I could see a world where the interesting thing about data in general is that people don't realize data doesn't always tell one story. Like there's ways to manipulate data to feed, to fit an argument you want to make. We see this all the time in politics, right? like two different sides of the aisle can take the same data and draw completely different conclusions from it and be very persuasive in doing so. That's kind of what makes a politician a politician in a way. So like, do you also think there's a world where data collected from citizen science work should be kind of open source and available for everybody, but then understanding it could also be manipulated for the wrong reasons? Or do you think there needs to be some guardrails on who has access to citizen science data? I think there definitely should be some guardrails to access that information, or at least the final data that has been collected. I think, again, that's up to the scientists to decide where and how to utilize that information because they have their own code of ethics and how they're approaching it. And I think that the people who are involved in collecting the data should also be obviously aware of where this information is going to go and live. And yeah, I think that's just a part of the process. Open source information is cool, but yeah, I don't like it when people manipulate information to their own benefit. At the end of the day, we all kind of have to decide like how are we contributing to the to the bigger mission, to the greater cause of making sure that humanity can survive on this planet for for more than a couple more generations. And so, yeah, it's an internal choice. How how should um somebody like if, if a citizen science project is presented to, to somebody to get involved with, what are the best ways to evaluate its legitimacy and whether or not it's something that, hey, this this is legit, this is this seems really interesting, I should do this, or there's some red flags here. And if so, what are those red flags that people can sort of spot? Oh, that's a great question. So I think that it's always a good thing to have at least a few different academic institutions attached to whatever citizen science project you're working on. Also look at their track record look and see if those principal investigators have published works out in out in the world what have they created what what findings have they shared look up the people involved if you have access to the internet you can do your own research and and kind of look at the background of those who are leading that project and then ask questions like inquire before you get involved make sure you talk to someone and so that you can verify the legitimacy of that project so in some ways apply the very scientific method to your evaluation of a citizen science opportunity. 
Definitely. Like I said, every every decision that we make <laughs> in our daily lives should involve the scientific method. <laughs> yeah, that that is a good lesson for everybody. Use the scientific method and everything. Uh, you'll be, you'll benefit from it. Well, great. That, those are that's a lot of the main questions I wanted to get to. Is there anything in the realm of citizen science discussion that you think we missed, or any other points that are worth are worth highlighting for folks? I think that it's valuable for everyone to at least experience citizen science once in their lives, whether you're a high school student or a retired person, like you can get involved. And so get started and don't be, don't be intimidated by this idea that you don't have enough science experience or you don't have a science degree. It's all about jumping in and getting started. I think it's, it's intrinsically valuable on so many different levels and the more people we have invested in this idea of, of observing our world and and learning more about it, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I think. Would you would you classify? I'm just curious your answer to this. So one of the companies that does a, a mass, the, an amazing job of collecting data and making interesting insights out of it is Spotify. Uh, obviously for music trends and taste, but also, music is a huge huge pillar of culture, right? Music is very much mirrors culture. So would you say? By using Spotify, that is a, a indirect form of citizen science. You are opting in to sharing your musical tastes and consumption patterns to the platform that then uses them to draw some really interesting and valuable conclusions about trends in the music industry. Would you would you classify that as a form of citizen science in a way, or just curious? I mean, personally, I don't think I would because it's a very passive action. It's just you yeah. listening to music and then you're contributing your data, which is it's it's valuable and valid, but you're not you're not actually taking part in the collection of the data. So that to me is what so differentiates in science. Got it. Yes. It's the, the sort of proactive research collection. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we we hope that everyone can tend, like those that are interested while there's tickets available can join our citizen science exploration down in Costa Rica coming up with other backseat turtles. It is very much citizen science to the nth degree. Definitely. I'm so looking forward to this trip and being able to get back outside, get to the ocean, to be immersed in nature. That to me is the best form of citizen science when I get to be involved in projects like that, where I'm working directly with the researchers in the field, observing what they do and learning how they collect their data. That to me is the best, the best form of citizen science out there. I only I only know you, Danny, from a couple of our conversations so far. But what from what I what I can tell, your happy place seems to be the water. <laughs> oh, for um, sure, that's without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I'm most amazing. free. I love just the weightlessness of it. I love, of course, interacting and encounters with marine animals. But more than anything, the ocean is a release for me. It's somewhere that I can let go of anything and everything that's on my mind and get into that blue mind state. Like my friend, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols coined the blue mind where everything is in flow. Your, your brain is not running through a million thoughts a minute. It's, it's still, and no matter how turbulent the ocean is to me, it's a, it's a, it recalibrates my spirit and it really helps me to just get back aligned with what I'm here to do and my purpose. And I think if you're purpose driven and you find something that you're passionate about and you put 100% of your energy into, into that passion, it's like things become so clear and the ocean has always been the source for that clarity. Yeah. I'd like to imagine that all forms of marine life just sort of 
give a little smile when they see you coming their way. Um, <laughs> and people like yourself. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Well, great. There's a couple of fun kind of just rapid fire questions I'd like to end with. And just you can just say the first thing that comes to your mind. The first one is, what is a, a book that you think people would benefit from reading that you, that has impacted you in a way in your life? Mm. Well, I'd say my number one choice would be The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. That's one of my favorites. I've read that book like five times from front to back. And it's just one of those things. It's very, it's based on like analogies and, and whatever through a storyline of this young boy who's a a shepherd. But like, to me, it it speaks volumes to this life experience. And I just, I just love the book so much. So I'd highly recommend that. What about a film or documentary series in the world of, of climate environment conservation that maybe is not like planet earth, like one that everyone has heard about, but maybe something that is a little more below the radar that you think people should go see. I love Game Changers, which was directed by Luisa Hoyos. And that that movie to me, the documentary, spoke in a way that was so different from most documentaries that are talking about plant-based diets or how we can actually affect change when dealing with the climate crisis. This is a very tangible and straightforward documentary that spoke in a, in a tone that I really appreciated because it didn't feel like a traditional, like, you're doing this wrong, pointing fingers at people, telling people that you're you're li- doing life the wrong way. It's more like, hey, like, take this information, do it, do with it what you want, but just know that this is a pathway for you to actually contribute to the health of our planet, period. And I just love the way that it was produced. Yeah, and, and game changers into and your own health. Right? That to me was like the like such a turning point for a lot of people of like they're recognizing it. They've heard the environmental position on plant-based diets, but they showed you that we can perform better on plant-based diets. And for context, for our Costa Rica trip, uh, our sea turtle adventure, we will be plant-based for the whole trip. Yeah. Okay. What this is going to be a tough one for you? Maybe not. What is your favorite? animal in the world oh my favorite animal i'm gonna be cliche and i don't care i love the orca killer whales they're my favorite they've been my favorite since day one i love that they're extremely intelligent they work in uh, matriarchal societies so the the female orcas are the leaders and the way that their pod structure works and like the fact that a lot of the different pods have different dialects between themselves and oh it's just fascinating to look at the social structure of orca pods and just how like creative they are. I love them. And and of course they're beautiful. That helps for sure. But it's, they're one of those charismatic megafauna that everyone loves. And so that's why I said it was a cliche, but they're truly my, my guide, like my guiding animal. When I, when I worked at Snapchat several years ago, I made some frenemies, we'll say it internally because I worked on some of the ad products and I was demanding that we don't allow SeaWorld to advertise because they were offering a lot of money. And I was alone in this, in this fight, <laughs> which is hard to be alone on anything inside of a, a fast moving tech company. But yeah, I, I just couldn't, it just, I just couldn't be, I just couldn't be okay with knowing that we're taking ad dollars from SeaWorld. Yeah. Yeah. It's a level of consciousness. I, I can't, sit here and be like, I never went to SeaWorld. Of course I went to SeaWorld as a kid. That was that was the nineties. People were like, okay, this is cool. But then Free Willy the movie came out and and started to change a few people's ideas about keeping cetaceans in captivity. Um and now we're at the the level I think within our collective consciousness to know that this is not right. These animals are 
do not deserve to be in captivity. They need to be in the open ocean, free, and and that's it. Like that's that's all there is to it. And so how do we get there? We have to continue to push and to make sure that companies like SeaWorld and other places that have captive cetaceans and pinnipeds as well, like let's let's cut that because we have enough technology. We have so many different media pathways where we can capture content that feels so real for audiences to feel connected to these animals, to see them in their own wild space. And we don't need to see them up close in person in a tank. Like that doesn't make any sense. For, for those that we've all felt the, the challenge of being even just stuck in our homes for a year in quarantine. Exactly. Um, well, imagine being stuck in your bathtub for your entire life. <laughs> like that's essentially <laughs> what we're doing. And, exactly. and yeah, so, okay. Last question. What is one behavior change that is super accessible that you would like to see more people adopt in, in support of saving this planet? There are so many to pick from, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would go back to plant-based diet. I mean, it, when you can when you incorporate a plant-based diet into your your daily living i think it makes a huge difference i understand some people need to need to eat meat but the type of meat that you're eating where is it coming from knowing where your food comes from as a whole is like a very important thing that people need to explore especially as americans and so even if you could be plant-based five days a week. Like that's a huge step in the right direction. And we could address a lot of different facets of the climate crisis just by changing your diet. And we have so many options now, like as far as like comfort foods and things like that, whether it's hamburgers, fried chicken sandwiches, mac and cheese, there are plant-based options out there available that taste really good. And I think they're only going to get better. <laughs> they will. They will. And, 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 and outside of food deserts are a real thing. I want to acknowledge that. And for those that unfortunately are living in food deserts in this country, those options are limited. And that that's that's a problem that needs to be that needs to be solved. And plant-based food should not be so expensive and should not be so inaccessible. But for those that can have access to it and can afford it, and uh, absolutely should be making inroads and just trying to cut back a little. Like you said, five days a week. For me, if someone does it one day a week that eats meat three meals a day right now, if you do it one day a week, you're going to have a tremendous impact on this world just cutting back a little bit. So yeah, that's a, it's a good one. And uh, honestly, that's the most popular answer of all of our podcast guests. The most popular answer is eat less meat. <laughs> <laughs> so there is some scientific consensus yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it's something <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's the most tangible thing that we can do. Of course, we can slow down our consumption of single-use plastics and all of that. But for me, whenever I mention the plastics issue, it's like, more than just putting all of the pressure on the consumer, like we need to put more pressure on the corporations who are producing these plastic products. And we also need to completely revamp our waste management system. And if we don't handle those two things, uh, to me, a lot of the individual actions on single-use plastics are futile. They do make an impact. But in the grand scheme of things, like we have a major systemic change that has to happen in, in terms of plastics. Yeah. And a uh, not-so-shameless plug, just because you brought it up, our first episode this year, the podcast was on the recycling and waste issue with the CEO of the biggest recycling company in the Nordics. And one of the most interesting things that I learned in that podcast was that there actually is no way to recycle our way out of the waste issue. We have to change material science. We have to change how things are made and what they're made with. There's just no way to fully recycle 
the, the the packaging and products we use today, we have to change how things are made, how things are packaged. Like it's the only way out of the waste problem. Yes. Yes, that's it. Well, I just want to say thank you for all the work you do and thank you for joining us today and thank you for joining this trip with us and we'll we'll be talking with you more. Thank you, James. I really appreciate the time and space to be here and to share a little bit of my story and hopefully inspire those listening to to start taking action today. Yeah, you're a, you're a massive inspirational force. So thank you for all you do. Mm-hmm.